Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 82 Game Master 101. So, last week we covered the 101 of being a player in a tabletop role playing game. This week we're shifting to the other side of the GM screen and looking at being a GM. Now, I know I briefly hit on this topic back in episode 35 of the podcast, plus all my game recaps on Bad GM's campaign build along get into my thoughts from a GM's perspective, but I thought it might be a good idea to get these thoughts along with some others I hadn't hit on before all together in one place. Besides, we do have to do a companion piece to the player's show, right? No need for the tour bus this week since it's all coming from my personal experiences. I'd also note that the thoughts I'm expressing here are my opinions. Your own experiences and thoughts may vary, so I'm not trying to spread the gospel here. What I am trying to do is provide help to GMs who are either rather new at this or have found themselves in a rut and are examining how they run their game to see if they can find a way out. I've been in both of these spots before, and I've been fortunate enough to have great friends and players along the way that have helped me find my way along. So last week I went over the basics of the process for finding a group if you're a player looking for a group to play with. But what if you're a GM searching for a game? Honestly, the same basic principles apply. The only major adjustment is that you have a game or games that you are comfortable running and you're looking for players to play them. So when hitting up the various message boards, both physical and online, you'll want to know which games you're comfortable running. I would also suggest creating an email address, especially for this process, since you don't necessarily want people you don't know to have your personal email. And we all know you can create one for free from a number of different sources, so don't get all worried about that. Heck, I've got a personal email, a junk email I use for contests, the email address for the production company, an email for my work. (laughs) You get the picture. Just have folks who are interested in playing reach out to you via email and let them know you'll get back to them within 24 hours of getting that email. Now, there's one more thing you'll need to have already figured out before you post. Does everyone need to be in the game in person? Are you running for everyone online or are you comfortable with a mix of the two? I've done all three of these at one point in time or another, and I have to admit I'm the most comfortable with either of the first two. I tend to struggle a bit if I've got some folks at the table in person and others there via Zoom or some other method. But if you've got the technical wherewithal and the gear to pull it off, hey, more power to you. The reason you need this worked out beforehand, and make sure it's a part of the post, is that obviously you don't want someone expressing interest in an in-person game finding out that that's not what you're thinking or, or vice versa. Plus, there are some folks out there that like to game. They just don't necessarily like leaving the house to do it. So that's an important part to have out there at the very beginning. Once you get the emails from interested parties, you can start getting more specific. You can put together a document with the questions you'd like answered and attach it to your email response if you want. Or if it's only a couple of questions, you can type it directly into the email each time. Full disclosure here, I've never had to use this method for putting together a group, so I'm working from a theoretical perspective. That being said, if I had to do it, here's a few questions I'd be asking folks interested in playing my game. One, do you prefer a role-playing heavy game, a combat slash test heavy game, or something that's a blend of the two? And why? Of the games I listed in the posting, which would be your preferred game? Second choice? Third choice? And last, 
what do you consider to be your style of gaming? By this, I mean, do you enjoy the role play between characters and NPCs? Do you prefer to pillage, pillage, pillage and loot everything in sight? Or do you like to role play until the situation calls for the pillaging and looting? Now, look, I'm sure I'd put more questions in there, but I figured that these three would get you going on your own list. And I'm also sure some of our listeners will post their own thoughts either on YouTube or on the Facebook page. So check those out for more ideas. While you're going through interested players, and this is whether you do a posting or you're having a bunch of friends come in and play, you need to decide how many people you want at the table. I mean, if you're comfortable with four or five players, then you need to limit how many you take at four or five. Be honest, but be fair. I mean, if the first five responses you get fit your vision for the group, then set it up and go. But let everyone else know who's responded that you appreciate their interest and ask if you can email them later if you have an opening and or you decide to run a second game. Look, man, I don't have that kind of time, but you might. From there, things should run like you do if you were bringing five of your friends to the table. Though I might suggest holding the first couple of sessions on neutral ground. If you've got a game shop near you, they should have tables you can use to run your game. Just ask what the policy is for reserving one of them for your game. I do suggest that because obviously you're going to be gaming with four or five people you don't know. I don't know about you, but I'd like to spend a couple of sessions getting to know these people before I'd be comfortable inviting them over to my house. Of course, you might never decide to game at your house, and that table at the game shop might be your permanent base of operations. Nothing wrong with that, so long as you follow the shop's rules and be a good citizen while you're there. Oh, and should you decide to run a game at your house, please make sure folks know the house rules before they get there. What I mean by that is if, that if you don't want shoes on your carpet, make sure that's understood. Also, if there are food restrictions or something, make that clear as well. The last thing you want to do is have a peanut allergy and have one of your players bring peanut brittle for a snack. To me, that's just kind of a courtesy for everybody. So at this point, you've got your game and your group and you're ready to go. We'll continue this thought in a moment or two. Because what if you don't want a game with strangers? Maybe you've got a few friends or family members that have expressed an interest in trying this D&D thing they've heard about. I mean, Stranger Things has gotten a lot more people interested in D&D than probably have been previously. So let's be honest, it's not outside the realm of possibility. The process, as I've mentioned, is similar to the one I just laid out, though I wouldn't be asking them about game style or anything like that. Instead, you are probably going to have to teach them how to game, so put your teacher hat on and get ready. For this group, I'd strongly suggest using an adventure module or two for a bit, at least until they get their gaming legs under them. Sure, you've written a phenomenal campaign that spans three continents, two generations, and a ton of dragons and orcs. But if your group needs to be on training wheels for a little bit, unless you can alter some of your beginning materials to work with these new gamers, you're not going to feel satisfied with the results. And I've been there, so I know. Trust me on this. Now, not all of us are like that, though. And fortunately, pretty much every major game has published adventures for it, so you've got the resources to tap into. Just remember to go slow and be patient for a bit while your players get it together. You might also need to provide dice and other necessary stuff for a bit while your players get the hang of remembering their own stuff. Heck, I've had to provide dice for players who've been doing this for a while, so having to do it for new players isn't really that big of a deal for me. This scenario will also be different from the first one because you're most likely going to be playing at someone's house. So make sure the house rules are known and make sure the policy on food and snacks is worked out before game one. 
After all, you don't want folks to not bring anything and then have to run out right before the game starts to grab stuff. I mean, once in a while is okay, but every week gets really old after a while. And since you all know each other, you might decide to organize cooking together, or at least bringing potluck for a meal during the game. Good on you if you can do that. My group has done this in the past, though at present our policy is that everyone brings their own dinner, but brings snacks for the group to share. That works for us, might not work for you. So regardless of how you get there, once you've got the group, you've now got a set of responsibilities you need to live up to. I mean, after all, you are the one running things. It's your story, basically. So you're the one who has to build up the setting and provide the mechanics that keep the story rolling along. Another way to look at this is that it's your world, you are the divine being, and the players are working their way through your world. However, some folks take that last one a little bit too far, so maybe let's stick with the first analogy, right? The one big thing I've seen GM struggle with, and it's something I struggle with all the time, is being properly prepared for the game. I think some of that boils down to what we consider to be prepared. For some, it's going through every inch of the material for the session and breaking down every possibility that could occur so that they're ready to address it. On the other end of that pendulum is the GM who doesn't feel the need to read a single word of the material until the game begins. They like to be spontaneous and let the players lead the story to wherever it might go. In my opinion, there's no right way or wrong way to prep for your game. Whichever technique you need to use is fine. I mean, after all, you're the one who needs to be comfortable running the game, so do what you need to do to be ready. Now, that being said, if you're creating your own campaign, you do need to have enough material prepared to run a single session. There are a couple of factors that are going to determine how much material is enough. The first, of course, is the length of time for your game session. Obviously, if you're gaming for eight hours, you're going to need more material than if you only game for four. Well, normally that's obvious, but there's something else that factors in, and that's my second factor. How fast does your group move through the material you've got? When you begin the campaign, that's not necessarily possible to know. I mean, even if you've played with the same group for ages, each campaign is completely different, even if it's being run with the same game and system. This holds especially true if you're running a roleplay heavy game versus a combat heavy game, because they do make a difference. The basic rule of thumb that I use when I'm prepping my session is to try to have enough material for what I believe will be two sessions. That way, if my group runs through everything I had for a single session and we still have a decent amount of game time left, we don't have to wrap early. However, it's also possible that the giant battle you cooked up at the beginning of the session could take two hours of real time to run so they don't get through everything you created for a single session. Hey, that's okay too. At least you know you had enough material to cover the time. Now, where I get myself in trouble is when I don't have enough material prepped for the session and we run through all of it with a decent amount of time left. And so we understand the parameters here. Let me explain how my group works. We play every other Saturday night and we start around 9 p.m. since we've got several players who work on Saturday and the last one doesn't get there until about 9. We typically try to wrap sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., Again, because we've got folks with responsibilities on Sundays, like jobs and church, so we're trying to be respectful of everyone's needs. So, on the average game night, let's say we get started around 9.30, because that's about the earliest we get started after folks get finished shooting the bull about everything that's happened since the last time everybody saw each other. If we base on a 2 a.m. stop, we're looking at about four and a half hours of game time. I try to make sure I've got at least five hours worth of material prepped, 
But there have been nights, including in our Deadlands campaign, where the group ran through everything I had in about two hours, and I was left trying to figure out what to do so I didn't have to wrap at 11.30 or 12 o'clock. Another issue that falls along this same line is when the group goes in a direction you didn't anticipate. Don't feel bad about that, by the way, because it's virtually impossible to anticipate every possible direction your group can go with the story. What we need to dive into is what to do when either of these two scenarios comes into play. And believe me, no matter how well you think you've prepped, one of them will come into play at some point in time. When it comes to the group going in a direction you didn't anticipate, there are several schools of thought I've discovered over the years. I'm not going to get into all of them because I think some of them suck, but there are a couple that I wanted to detail here just a little bit. One of the thoughts is to figure out how to drag your group back onto one of the paths you've prepped for. After all, how dare they take your adventure and go where they want with it? And in case I didn't voice that quite right, that last line was supposed to just drip with sarcasm. Anyway, there's a major issue with that school, and that's the fact that you're going to insult and discourage your group if you do that, because they're going to ultimately feel like they've got no say or control over the adventure, save those decisions that run along the GM's party line. There is a way you can get the group back on your track without dragging them there, though. It starts with the second school of thought, which is to take a game break for a moment. I'll expand on that second school in a minute, but what you're going to do here is work with what they've told you they were doing, then check your prepared material and see if there's something there that can be moved to fit with what they're doing. Sometimes it's something as simple as someone being kidnapped or attacked, while other times you have to lift entire cities or towns, redress them a little bit, then drop them onto the part of the map where the group's headed. The group still gets to decide where they want to go, and you still get to run some of the stuff you prepared. That's a win-win if you ask me. It's not perfect, of course, and you'll still have to go back later and fill in some of the gaps of your campaign setting to account for the changes. But you saved the game for tonight and your players will thank you for it later. Now, getting back to our second school of thought, try to make that game break as short as you can. If by chance your group has a planned break time for meals or something during this time, this would be a good time to call that break and send folks for food. After all, you can eat while you run, or, or at least I can anyway. It buys you some time to work some things out, especially when you've figured out you can't move anything you've already created to account for the changes. Fixing that is going to take a bit more work. Now, if we were good GMs, we'd have a bit of background on the various areas of our setting with at least some basics we could build on in a pinch. I happen to be the bad GM, hence the name of our production company, so I find myself frequently at a loss when these points come up. At this point, especially if you don't have a lot of time to work with, grab some random encounters you can use, mix in a couple of NPCs with knowledge of the points you worked up for your other materials, and see where you can get from there. Now, you don't want to overpower the encounters. Again, doing that gives the group the impression you're trying to strong arm them, and that doesn't tend to end well. That doesn't mean you can't make it tough on them, though. If you make it tough, i.e. they might win, but they'll take a lot of damage and or have to use a lot of resources, you can give them the impression that the area they're headed to is a hell of a lot more dangerous than the one they were in. If you're lucky, it'll occur to someone that they need to be more powerful, aka higher level, before they take on this area, and they'll take off back in the direction from whence they came. That gives you the opportunity to drop one of your prep towns back in and get back on track. Again, it's about perception and choice. If the group believes they have a legitimate choice, they're going to buy what you're selling. 
If they feel like you're dragging them around by the chain, you're going to get questioned a lot. And if you're looking for a game-specific example of this, check out the last couple of episodes of the campaign build-along for Season 1. I specifically mentioned in one of the episodes that one of my players pointed out, in character, that it seemed as if the group was being led around from encounter to encounter. And he wasn't wrong. And the sad part about that is that I was using fully prepared materials for my game. So, yeah. Now, sometimes the going off the path that the group does is more subtle. You might have meant for the group to just head through a village on the way to the big town they're supposed to be headed to, but your group decides they want to hit up whatever market is there and do some buying. If you haven't prepped for this, you'll find yourself going off the cuff when the deal goes down. I've done the same thing in negotiations with my group when they didn't go quite the way I planned. What I should have done is to take a moment to work it out of my head. What I did, though, was to wind up giving the group way more than I should have, and typically for way less than I should have. So, in those cases, keep your wits about you. Play out the negotiation and try to remember you don't have to give them everything they ask for. Unless, of course, that's your style. In that case, hey, go nuts. Now, a moment ago, I said something about my group feeling like they were being dragged around in material I'd already prepped. I did two episodes to close out season one of the campaign build along where I did a post-mortem on the game. One was for the build itself. The other was for how my group ran it. Again, check out those episodes if you want to hear me get into greater detail about that. The better question, I guess, is how does that happen? How do you take choice away from your players when you're the one who built it in the first place? Honestly, that's the easiest way to do it. See, when I write, I write my games out a lot like I would write a story. So the story takes place in a very linear fashion, but I make adjustments to take gaming into account. Now, for the campaign build-along, I've adjusted this a bit since I'm building the game while I'm explaining it to GMs, so I've had to change how I do it a little bit. But the process for me is still pretty much the same. My failure in the Deadlands game is that I didn't have a big, bad, evil guy in mind when I began the game. My original concept was a series of adventures linked together by the party and the city they started in. Somewhere along the line, I got this bright idea of putting a super secret organization in place as the overall baddie for the game. But rather than take my time and let the idea marinate, I dropped it onto my group as a partially formed idea, with the idea being we'd expand on it as we went along. I sort of did that, but my great fault there was that I didn't take the time necessary to allow the group to investigate for clues so they could figure out who each of the members of this group were. Instead, as they took out each member, they got the name and location of the next one. So I basically put them on a track from one person to the next with no choice as to how to do it. That was entirely on me, and I put it in podcast form for the entire world to hear. Again, that's why I call myself the bad GM. Now, I say all of this to you so you can learn from it. You don't have to have your big baddie all figured out at the beginning of the game. I mean, hell, you don't even have to have one if you don't want to. If you don't and you decide to bring one in at some point, take the time to work in the details slowly so that your group has the feeling of accomplishment and choice and give them those choices. It doesn't have to be like a combo meal at some restaurants where you take something from column A and something from column B. It can be as simple as giving them two choices and allowing them to choose which one to take. Again, so long as they feel like they're driving the narrative, you should be fine. Now, I've been asked several times over the course of both of my podcasts about what my prep looks like for a game as well as what our setup looks like. So let me share that with you for your own use if you're interested. 
Now, I'm not going to use my current prep as an example because since I'm playing the games I'm building for the campaign build-along, I literally take my recording script with me to game night and I run it off of that. So my prep work is already done long before I walk into the game. Before I started doing the podcast, I'd spend five or six hours the night before the game going over my notes from the previous game and working up the next game scenario. First, I'd check to see what materials I had that hadn't already been covered, and if they could come into play in the new session, of course, I'd use them. Otherwise, I'd build the new materials off of the end point of the last session, sprinkling in what I believed to be appropriate encounters and treasure. Truth be told, I was always a nervous wreck when I did it that way, because I was always afraid I'd missed something, and that caused me to alter my work in the middle of a session, and it always seemed to be in ways that threw the game way out of balance in the favor of my group. Now, they loved it, of course, but it just it made me miserable. Fortunately, I don't have that issue quite so much anymore, and I have my listeners to thank for it. Now, I've got a game bag specifically for role-playing game stuff that I pretty much keep packed at all times. It's got my players' character sheets in them, and I buy plastic folders and sheets for them so that they don't get damaged. I also keep legal pads, pens and pencils, and my dice in there. My books get moved in and out since I use them for prep for the game and for the podcast, so I do have to check and make sure they're in there before I leave. I also make sure I've got any props I need for the game, and those usually necessitate the use of a backpack, so I've got everything I need in easy-to-carry packages. Now, our actual game setup is one I've used dozens of times. We use the living room at our friend Scott's house, and the players sit on various pieces of furniture in a U-shape, while I take a dining room chair and put that at the top of the U with a folding table in front of me to use for my stuff. I don't use a GM screen anymore, since the closest players to me are a couple of feet away and angled to where they really can't see anything. I do make sure I've got my dice roller out and everyone else either has one or they have access to a hard surface so they can roll as well. We also have a very casual policy in that players can get up and wander into the kitchen for snacks and or drinks as need be. It helps that the kitchen and living room are connected and open so that you can still hear what's going on. That particular rule wouldn't work if the rooms were far apart, so of course it might not work for you. For the record, we did used to game at Scott's Kitchen Table. At the time, there were only five of us gaming, so we didn't need quite as much room. As the group grew, we realized the table had gotten too small, so we moved to where we had more room. My point here is game where you're comfortable gaming. If it feels like torture sitting somewhere, don't do that. We're supposed to be having fun, so let's make sure we're having fun. Oh, it occurs to me, I said something a moment or two ago about handing out too much stuff to my players, and some of you might be wondering, how much is too much? Now, that's a tricky question, and it's a thought you need to have before you ever play the first session. You need to ask yourself how you want money and or items to be handled in your game. And I'm going to use D&D as an example here, since it's the game that pretty much all of you know. Do you want gold to be difficult to earn? Do you want your group to really have to pinch their pennies, as it were, in order to be able to afford the most basic of items? I mean, hell, are there even any high-level magic items available in your world? And if there are, how does one go about getting them? The flip side to that would be if you don't care how much gold or magic your group has. After all, D&D has enough creatures in its various books that you could utilize to deal with pretty much anything your group could throw at it. Granted, your group will realize why you're doing it, but that's the price you pay. Now, I think the middle ground is what most of us shoot for. We don't want things to be so rare that our players feel frustrated about their lack of swag. However, we also don't want them to have so much stuff that they're handing out rings of protection like their bubble gum. 
It's the balancing act that gives so many of us headaches and, for me, occasionally unbalances the overall campaign. I wish I had helpful suggestions here, but I don't. The only words of advice I can give you are to use your judgment and do what ultimately works best for you. And if it doesn't work the first time, keep trying. You'll either eventually get it to work the way you want, or you'll develop a system that you like that does work for you. Okay, so before we call it a show, I did want to point out that there are literally hundreds of video series out there that offer tons of advice about how to build and run a game. Most of them cover D&D, but many of the concepts discussed in them can be applied to other games as well. I found most of the videos I've watched to be, at the very least, very entertaining. However, I'd caution anyone watching one of them to understand that if you're not doing things exactly the way the presenter suggests, that doesn't mean you're a bad GM. It just means they're giving you the best practices that work for them, much like I did today. So if you want to gather all the knowledge you can, I certainly encourage that. Just don't think you have to do things the way Matt Mercer or Matt Colville or Professor Dungeon or anyone does it in order to be good at what you do. Because, and this is the point I want you to get out of all of this, good is a subjective term. Did your group have fun? Did they feel like they accomplished something? Did they feel like you told a good story? Then you're good at what you do. Take your compliments, pat yourself on the back for a minute, then put your nose back on that grindstone and build on all that good for next time. And don't hesitate to reach out to me if you've got questions. I've got answers. Some of them suck, (laughs) but I've got them. And with that, we've come to the end of today's show. Next week, we kick off 2023 by getting back to our usual deep dives. Fantasy Games Unlimited will be our kickoff to the new year, and I'm excited to get back to what we do best. In the meanwhile, I ask that you check out the podcast I've mentioned at least 100 times today, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. It's the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. This season, we're building for the Fallout role-playing game, and in a couple of weeks, we'll start providing recaps from my group running it, so you'll not only get to see how it's built, but how it runs when my group stress tests it. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod, Twitter at badgmp, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com and online the website badgmproductions.net. Okay, as this podcast drops, I realize that tomorrow is New Year's Eve. I wanted to take a moment on behalf of the entire Bad GM Productions family to wish all of you a happy new year and ask that you all be safe in whatever celebrations you partake in. And may the coming year bring us all kindness and joy. Next week, we deep dive Fantasy Games Unlimited. And that, by the way, is a listener request. I'll tell you all about it next week. But again, that is next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.